Gentlemen, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And uh, last week we looked at this, these two chapters, just this remarkable revelation of the love of God for us. And we saw that uh, we must be very careful not to forget that, that it is the Lord Himself who empowers us to experience whatever material bounty we have in this life, whatever so-called success we have in this life. Don't think for a minute that you accomplished it because of your great skill and wit. It is by the Lord that you have the power uh, to gain spirit, uh, material things. We taught that in chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, lest you thought for a moment that you are a follower of God because you're spiritually sharp, <laughs> morally straight, intellectually acute, uh, unless you thought that, what Moses reminds all of us this morning is that we're a bunch of dufoi, that's the plurifal doofus, and that it is not because of our righteousness that he chose us, it's because of the opposite, because we're peculiarly unrighteous. And as an example, you remember last week at the end of chapter 9, we saw this lowest point in Israel's history which is when their mediator between God and man, Moses, was up on the mountain receiving the ten words of God for all time and eternity, receiving the law of God. It was then that they said, where is that Moses? He's been gone a long time. We're going to create our own God. And they made a golden calf. And then Aaron had the temerity to say, well, you know, I just plopped that gold in the fire and out popped the calf and made it this... Ridiculous story, lying to Moses. They didn't have anything to do with it. Just just the, the worst kind of scandal in the church that you could possibly imagine. They erect a new God. And then they bow down before the golden calf and say, this is the God who brought us out of slavery, out of Egypt. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And what we've seen is that Moses is reminding the people, look, don't forget how you got here. <laughs> you're a turtle on a fence post. Somebody put you there. You didn't get there by yourself. Remember that it was all by His grace. And then we're going to start with chapter 10, and we're going to first of all read the first half, which is sort of a conclusion to that story. We see how low Israel can go. We see how low we can go, even as believers. So don't think for a minute that it's because of our righteousness. Not a shred of righteousness. It's just the opposite. We, we have been and are peculiarly unrighteous. And it's by this calling of unrighteous people that God displays the magnitude of His grace and mercy. So you're part of the theater. You're part of the play. You're the foil, uh, if you will, in a sense, for God's grace. And yet at the same time, you're a beloved son. It's, it's a mystery. But let's look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. We'll see how Moses summarizes this. And it's very important because we're going to see in this first half, the main point is God is faithful to His covenant. God is faithful to His covenant. And one way in which we see the faithfulness of God in His covenant is our unfaithfulness. When, when does your marriage get tested? Is it not? When the afflictions come? Is it not when she is not showing you respect? Is it not when she's not meeting your needs? Now we'll find out 
what your faithfulness in the covenant is all about. And that's what Moses is saying. Is not God's faithfulness shining most brilliantly when we're at our worst? And so we see how bad we are, and then we see how good God is. And let's look in verses 1 through 11. We'll especially see how good He is. Chapter 10, verse 1. At that time, the Lord said to me, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. Okay, let's stop for a moment. You remember that when Moses came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments and he heard the revelry and he saw this unbelievable apostasy and idolatry, he realized that as far as he could make out, the covenant had been broken with God and he broke the tablets. He just basically said, it's over. So the first tablets were broken because the people of God apostatized. So here now God is speaking to us, telling us, go do it again. Amazing. Verse 2, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me. The people of Israel journeyed from Beeroth, Benijakin, to Mosirah. There Aaron died, and there he was buried. And his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gadgoda, and from Gadgoda to Jotbatha, a land with brooks of water. At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister to Him, and to bless in His name to this day. Therefore Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Amazing. God is faithful to His covenant. Now, How did he show his faithfulness? How does he still show his faithfulness when you and I screw up royally? First of all, we receive full restoration. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 5. 1 through 5, we receive full restoration. Gentlemen, I don't know what you've done. I know it's bad. If I were just to tell you, hey, you got found out. All of a sudden you go, which one? (laughs) Which one did everybody hear about? There are these sins that most of us carry in our minds. There are about usually five or six of them that are the whoppers, that any one of which would just completely humiliate us, and we don't want to be found out. Well, you're found out. God knows about it all. I don't know what yours are, but we've all got them. And what we find out from the Scriptures is no matter how bad it is, God gives full restoration. 
from every single one of your sins. Even if you made a golden calf, bowed down to it, and said to it, Thank you, God, for redeeming me from my sins. That's a bad sin, by the way. If you do that, there's full restoration. First of all, we get forgiveness. We have His forgiveness. And here's why I say it. The very first verse, He says, At that time the Lord said to me. What do you mean the Lord said to you? You went and worshipped another God. Why don't you go talk to that God? Why don't you see if your golden calf will talk to you? Why don't you pray to it? You built it. Why don't you ask it to take you through the wilderness and give you the promised land? Gentlemen, I don't know about you, but if, if your wife commits adultery, bows down, and worships another man, and says she wants to live all of her life with him, and he's beautiful, I, I doubt too many of us would say, come on now, well, the next day, come on, let's talk about it. No, it's over. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Wouldn't that be the way almost every one of us would react when someone's unfaithful to us when they made a covenant with us? But that is not how God reacts with His people. For some reason, He loves us so much that when we've committed the worst sins, you can still talk to Him. You can still make up. You can still go back to Him. And the Lord talks back. You can go into conversation with Him. And He doesn't destroy them. He's talking to them. It's an amazing thing. Forgiveness is already predicted in the way that God is dealing with them. And the Lord is still talking to us. After all the dumb, stupid, idiotic, rebellious things I've done, He still talks to me in His Word. Secondly, when you get to the second half of verse 1 through verse 5, what you see here marvelously is that He continues to give us direction. You know, if we destroy the first Ten Commandments and show Him that we don't care anything about them, we start with number one, that there is to be no other God before you. And before He even gets down the mountain, we've broken number one. Before we actually get the commandments in our hands and hear them read out, we just violently, grossly, violate the number one commandment and break the covenant, if you will. As far as we have anything to do with it, we've divorced Him. And then He speaks to us and says, I'm going to give them to you again. And gentlemen, that's exactly the way God works with His law. You and I break the law every day. He keeps coming back to us giving us the law. The law is gracious because it's in the context of redemption. And He'll keep guiding you. So, for example, if... if if you are married, the Bible says you shall not divorce. There are only two grounds for divorce, and that is she irremediably abandons you or she commits sexual adultery with another man. Other than that, no divorce. And it's really clear in the Bible, no divorce. And then you go divorce. And you know what? There's another command. But if you do, then remain single or be reconciled to one another. It's amazing. The law always comes to you even after you disobey the law and go in another direction, then you'll get plan B. You, you want to go for plan C? Okay, we'll give you plan C. How about plan D? Plans all the way ad infinitum. How many times shall he forgive us? Seventy times seven? No, infinitely. And God always has a plan for you. It doesn't matter how big a hole you dig. And some of you have dug some trenches you can't even see the bottom of. But it's not too deep for God. There's a law down there where you've gone. There's a law. There's direction. That's exactly what he's giving Israel. I'm going to direct you knuckleheads. I'm not, I'm not going to destroy you. I'm going to stay with you. It's an amazing thing. So he tells Moses, cut yourself two tablets of stone just like the first. Let's just start all over. And that's the way every morning is. Get out of bed, just start all over. And if you can't do that, you can't be a follower of Christ. It's just that simple. 
If you can't start over moment by moment, you can't follow him because you're screwing up all the time. And so many people, especially those with perfectionistic tendencies, they get all wound up in their own performance. And if they can't perform well, they just don't want to try this Christian thing. Well, if that's the way it's going to be, it ain't going to work for you, I'm going to tell you. The only way it's going to work for you is constantly humbling yourself, casting yourself on his mercy, constantly, constantly affirming that you need his grace in the covenant. So he gives us his direction. He does it in two ways. First of all, he gives us the word again in those two commandments. Then notice where he puts it, in the ark. The ark of the covenant. Now we know from the rest of the Old Testament that the ark of the covenant was really the symbol of God's presence with them. And they would even be presumptuous and misuse the ark and try to go into battle with the Philistines hoping that the ark would bring them victory. And of course that was hypocrisy and it didn't work. But the ark was God's, it was the very center point of God's presence with him. So he says, put the Ten Commandments in the ark that was made for the Ten Commandments. So he's giving them direction. Now, notice secondly, first of all, we receive full restoration. That's the way it is. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, his blood shed on the cross, wipes away, cleanses your record, wipes away your sin, purges your record. And then notice what else he does. He then gives you his spirit to give you direction for this day's life. And that's exactly what he does in verses 6 through 11. We resume our journey. The people of Israel picked up their journey again. So now we're back on the road with God. So he, he forgives us. He gives us his law and his spirit, his presence, and puts us back on our journey. The people of Israel journeyed. Uh, now, I want you to notice two things about this journey. First of all, uh, they journeyed with God's blessing. They didn't just go out there presumptuously like they did when they were uh, fighting the Anakim after they had been cowards, and then they want to go fight them anyway. They were presumptuous and got defeated. But here they're going with His blessing. And how do we know that they have His blessing and we have His blessing? First of all, verse 6, He listens to our prayers. Moses says here that in that place, Mosira, there Aaron died, verse 6, and there he was buried. What's the significance of that? Well, because... If you look back in chapter 9, verse 20, Moses prayed for Aaron because of Aaron's great sin in building the golden calf and then lying about it. Moses mediated for him and God heard his prayer. Moses makes a point of it here that Aaron made it all the way to Mosira. He didn't die uh, at at Mount Sinai when he uh, created the golden calf. So God listens to to our prayers. Now you'll notice that uh, in these, well, you wouldn't notice because this is pretty obscure, but in verses 6 and 7, if you'll look at those places that are hard to pronounce, uh, Benny Jacon, Mozira, Gadgoda, Jabatha, verses 6 and 7, you would find those in Numbers 33, verses 30 through 33, but you'll find them in reverse order. And what's the significance of that? Well, we don't know for sure. But what it feels like is that Numbers 33 tells us, well, they went this direction. Deuteronomy tells us, well, they went this direction. The fact is they went both directions. They were going all over the place. They were wandering around. That's what it means to wander around in the wilderness. Because of their sin, 
in not going in at the report of the two spies, uh, they're wandering all over the place. But look, you feel that way sometimes too. Sometimes your business, you feel like, there's no direction here. You know, I just feel like I'm in spin cycle. Well, no matter what kind of cycle you're in, no matter where you're wandering, here's the point. God is with you. And he has, a, he has, has you on a track. And you've, you've got his blessing. If you're in Christ, you have his blessing. He's listening to your prayers. Now notice, secondly, not only does he listen to our prayers, but he continues the Levitical priesthood. And in the same way, he continues with us, the priesthood of Christ. He's our high priest. No matter where you're wandering, where you're going, God is always with you. He gives you his word. He puts you on pilgrimage. But he doesn't do it without answering your prayers and without giving you a, a high priest. He continues the Levitical priesthood. It's very significant. Verses 7 through 9, Moses makes it very clear that God set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant, number one, so the Ark is there. Secondly, to continue the priestly service, that is to stand before the Lord to minister to Him. So what, what is God saying? No matter where you wander back and forth, aimlessly wandering around, you have my presence, the Ark of the Covenant. You have my word, the Ten Commandments that are in the Ark. And you have a high priest that is standing before me all times, day and night, interceding for you, ministering in your behalf, on your behalf. Why? Because God wants to be present with His rebellious people. The greatest thing we fear from our rebellion is that we would drive Him away, that He would abandon us and break the covenant and just leave us out in the wilderness. What God is saying, what Moses is saying about God is, no matter how unrighteous you are, look how righteous He is in the covenant. He gives His presence always. That's the reason for the priesthood. Because the big problem of Exodus, if you remember those of us who studied it, is that God wants to be present with us, but how's He going to do that with a bunch of sinners? Well, we're going to have to have a priesthood. People who will cleanse themselves ritually and go into the presence of God on our behalf. Because most of the time we're unclean. So we're going to have representatives whom God will allow to come into His presence and minister to Him night and day. And that's exactly what He does. So here He's showing us, hey, God is saying, no matter what you did, I'm leaving my markers with you. I'm leaving all the means of grace with you because I intend to live with you, even amidst your rebellion. And then notice, thirdly, the benedictions that God intends to bless us all along the way. So he sets apart the tribe of Levi to take care of the ark, to stand before him and minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. And, of course, in Numbers chapter 6, you get the famous Aaronic blessing. And God says to the tribe of Levi, he says, I want you to say these words. And that's the Aaronic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace. He says, you say that over Israel and they will be blessed. I tell you, it's a wonderful privilege on Sunday mornings when I get to lift my hand like a Levite and pronounce a blessing and God says, and they will be blessed. And I'm looking at you and I'm saying, and they will be blessed. God is blessing His rebellious sons who are in the covenant. This is the nature of our relationship with Christ. It's very, very gracious. So all of this, Moses is saying to us about God. He listens to our prayers and he continues the Levitical priesthood because he intends to be present with us. And then in verses 10 through 11, we not only go with God's blessing, but we go with God's promise. 
the Lord was unwilling to destroy you. I don't know what's behind that. It kind of sounds like Moses lost his temper and said, God, I think now it's just you and me, buddy. Uh, these people, I mean, I, I, don't know, I don't know how you're going to deal with them, but I don't think I can deal with them anymore. That's what it sounds like to me, and I don't know. Later on, Moses changes his tune, and he's actually the one pleading with God. God, you can't leave these people. And God is saying, you go on, Moses, and I'm not going to go with you. I'll send an angel. Moses says, no, you're not either. We're not going if you don't go with us. What's the use of even trying to go if you don't go with us? That's later on. Moses is a mediator. God raises him up. But I have a feeling that God taught Moses how to be a mediator. Because here Moses says, he was not willing to leave you. And I think what Moses got there was, this is how I'm to mediate for these people. Because that's the heart of God. So we go with his promise. He's not willing to destroy us. And then look at the very end of chapter 11, where he says, arise, go on your journey at the head of the people so that they may go in and possess the land, look at this, which I swore to their fathers to give them. He's basically saying, I made this promise hundreds of years ago and I intend to keep it. My integrity is at stake. And of course, this is what Moses claims back to God later on. God, your integrity is at stake. What are the Egyptians going to think if you bring these people out in the wilderness and then just abandon them out there? What will the Egyptians say about you? They've got their own gods and they would believe it if one of their gods did that. But you, you say you wouldn't do that. Moses makes those kinds of arguments with God. Well, here God is teaching Moses how to make the argument. God is saying, I said this to your fathers, and I intend to keep my word. And once again, to use the marriage analogy, isn't it true that when you come in front of that church and you make that statement, gentlemen, it doesn't matter so much what she looks like and how she cooks and what kind of sex she provides you or anything else. Here's what really matters. What is your word worth? When you say you're going to do something, what is your word worth? Is it conditional or is it unconditional, which is what you said when you went up there? So what's at stake is your personal integrity. That's the biggest deal, humanly, in your marriage, your integrity. And that's exactly what God's saying about himself. So look, the great thing about being in Christ is that Christ is our covenant mediator. He is the one better than Moses. He is mediating a covenant where God's integrity is at stake in keeping you when you're in Christ. I'd say that's a pretty good guarantee, wouldn't you? All right. Let's look now at verses 12 through 22. Now, here's what's happening in these verses. The first half of chapter 10, as we've seen, has kind of summarized Moses' statements about how faithful God is in light of our unfaithfulness. Once again, it's, it's introducing us to who our God is. He is great and He is gracious. And who are we? We are weak and we are dependent upon His mercy. And first half of chapter 10 summarizes that, as you can see, picking up with the conclusion of the Exodus 32, 33, 34 story. Now, beginning with verse 12, Moses is now leading up to his first grand exhortation, which will be given in chapter 11. We'll get that next week. But in the beginning of this, this introduction to that exhortation is one of the grandest sections in all the Old Testament. Christopher Wright, an Old Testament scholar, puts it this way. He says, Deuteronomy 10, 12-22 is unquestionably one of the richest texts in the Hebrew Bible. 
And I think as you read it, you're going to see why. Because uh, we wouldn't pick this up so much in English, although you get hints of it, but it's very exalted, poetic Hebrew language. And it is comprehensive, these next verses, of the entire theology of the Old Testament. Christopher Wright says there are very few things taught in the Old Testament theologically that are not found in this last half of chapter 10. So it's this grand summary of what the Old Testament has been trying to say about God. And then, of course, uh, it is immensely challenging so that you also get in the latter half of chapter 10 what it is that we're supposed to be doing about it. So you get this revelation of who God is and what it is we're supposed to be doing. And it reminds me of the Westminster Shorter Catechism which says, uh, ask the question, what do the Scriptures principally teach? Answer, the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And that's exactly what you get in the latter half of chapter 10. What the Bible teaches us about God and what duty God requires of us. Let's look at it, uh, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Amen. Let's take a look at it, gentlemen, the moments we have left. The basic theme is that God calls us to be faithful to His covenant. So you see the rhythm here. First half, we're reminded as he summarizes the argument that God is faithful to His covenant. And now He's saying to us, we are called to be faithful to His covenant. He will always be faithful. We're called to be faithful. What does that mean? Let's take a look at it. First of all, it means total obedience. Total obedience. You can see from the beginning of verse 12, and now Israel. This is like a transition. It's very similar to one of Paul's therefores. You know, how he'll make a, a big argument and he'll say, therefore. Uh, for example, in Romans, you get... Romans 1 through 11, this grand argument for salvation by grace alone and Christ alone. Just a marvelous argument for our salvation. And then he says, We plead with you, therefore, brethren, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices to him. 
This is what one of those moments is like. We've, been, we've now seen how faithful God is. Therefore, he says, and now Israel. And basically what Moses is saying, let me boil this all down for you. Let me give you the simple, unadulterated, unadorned, simple commandments of the Lord. This is what he wants out of you. It's kind of like Micah 6, 6 through 8. Now, what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, walk humbly with your God. There, he, the, the, the prophet boils it down for us. This is Moses' version. He's going to boil it down for us. And here's what he says. First of all, total obedience, verses 12 through 13. And what we have here, uh, once again, what Christopher Wright calls a musical chord with five notes in it. And here are the notes. Fear the Lord. Walk in His ways. Love Him. Serve Him. Keep His commandments. Now there you have five notes. They each have their own distinctive tone. As you can hear someone who plays the piano well, uh, like Jim does every uh, Thursday morning. You have all these notes with their distinctive tones. But when you put them together, they, they make a beautiful, harmonious chord. And what is given here is a chord of total obedience with these distinctive notes. Let's look at the notes for just a moment. First of all, to fear the Lord. What's he saying? Basic reverence. Basic respect for the Lord. Basic reverence. Is there a reverence in your life? Would someone say about you like to do a Boy Scout? A good Boy Scout is reverent. Isn't that one of the 12 characters of a Boy Scout? Is reverent. Well, at least be a good Boy Scout. You know, they don't even have to be Christians, but they're supposed to be reverent. So what about you? Are you reverent? Anyone who knows the Lord fears the Lord. The fear or the reverence of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can't begin to have wisdom for decision-making, to be able to get a view of the world, to be able to position yourself thoughtfully where you are in life without a fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of everything. And you'll notice, for example, in Malachi, when the people were coming with blemished sacrifices, they were giving God the leftovers, what they didn't want to keep in their flocks. And so many people, they give to the Lord this way. They really do. In their financial giving, they give what they actually don't need. The first thing they do is they figure out what they need to survive. And then they give God part of what's left over because part of it has to go to savings and other things. And they give Him the leftovers. Here's what God says about that way of thinking. Shut the doors. I don't like your worship. I don't even want it anymore. You dishonor me. It ticks Him off because we're showing lack of fear. He says, would you treat a king this way? Would you treat your own father this way? Don't you have fear of your father? Would you, would you treat him this way? So the big complaint about the way the Israelites were giving in Malachi 1 is lack of fear. It's lack of reverence. And that's exactly where Moses starts, and that's where Malachi got it. Secondly, to walk in his ways. This is the most comprehensive language of Old Testament ethics. And in fact, you'll, uh, in, in uh, Judaism, the code for ethics is just the walking. What is the walking? And this is the best way to think of walking with God. We'll get more of this in just a moment. We'll come back to it. Thirdly, to love Him. And that just simply means covenant loyalty flowing out of gratitude. 
So we do not only fear Him and revere Him, we actually have profound affection for Him. We're drawn to Him. We want to be around Him. Yeah, He scares the jabbers out of us, but we want to be around Him. We're drawn to Him. We have deep affection and appreciation and gratitude for Him. So those twin emotions are always part of our lives, the fear and reverence and the joyful gratitude. And then fourthly, to serve Him. And what this means, the, the significance of this language is, they, of course, were bonded servants in Egypt. And what God is saying, I brought you out of Egypt to be my servants. You were in bondage to Satan. You were in bondage to your own flesh. You were in bondage to the ways of the world. God brought you out of that to be in bondage to Christ. And, of course, we know that being bound to Him is to find our freedom. Our freedom is in being the bonded servants of Jesus Christ. That's what Moses is saying to these people. You've been taken out of bonded servitude to be brought into bonded servitude to a master who owns the universe and treats you like sons because you are his sons. So we serve him and we do exactly what he says, when he says to do it, how he says to do it. And then we keep his commandments. And what this means is that we give careful and constant attention to the stipulations he gives us in our relationship with him. Whatever he says he wants, we give constant attention and careful attention to it. That's the reason we read our Bible. Who is this God, and what does He want from us? And we're studying our Bibles to find that out. Who is He, and what does He want from us? And so we scrupulously study His Word to find out what He wants from us. The most important thing about your work today, I don't care what it is, dealing with a personnel issue, dealing with a financial issue, dealing with a legal issue, dealing with a medical issue, here's the number one thing. What does God want from you in that? That's all that matters. So we go into every situation with one thing at the top of our agenda. What does it mean to keep His commandments in this environment and in this situation? That's the agenda for today and for every day if we're being faithful to the covenant. Now, I've added a sixth note for the chord here. I couldn't help myself because of this grand statement at the end of verse 13 where he says, for your good. And the reason is, Most men don't think this is for your good. You think it's kind of like your mom and daddy who just wanted you to stay out of trouble so you wouldn't be a headache to them, you know? These rules and traditions and social conventions and law of God, you just mix them all up together, and it just kind of keeps your nose clean and and makes you low maintenance. And sometimes we, we look at God that way. We think that's what he's doing. He's just trying to bound us in so we don't stir up too much trouble and create a nuclear war that he has to figure out how to handle and all this kind of thing. Just stay out of trouble. That's not it. He is giving us these laws for our good, for our welfare. He loves us. He wants us to have the best, and this is how it happens. And gentlemen, those of you who are older, you've lived long enough, you just look around. Is this not so evident to us? Look at a life that's been lived according to the commandments of God and see His blessing there. I mean, not perfectly, but someone who's been generally walking with Him. And then look at someone who's just sought their own pleasure in whatever ways they can come up. Would you look at the end of their life and see whether there's real blessing there or not? Now, there are those cases where there are some very rich, very seemingly happy people. And sometimes it stumps the psalmist. And he says, I was almost tripped up until... I contemplated their end. Sometimes it's not evident until the very end of judgment. 
Most of the time, however, you can see it in time, not just eternity. Is it not true that those who walk according to the Lord's word are the ones who are experiencing daily blessings? So he's saying this is for your good. You can see it in individual life. But you also see it in societal life. Is it not true that the nations and cultures that experience blessing are the ones who walk according to his word? I was just uh, reading a report from Dr. Richard Watson, uh, who, uh, whom we support in his work over in Ukraine to teach in seminary there. Now, this is seminary. This is men, uh, largely men, who are preparing for pastoral ministry, most of them already in some sort of Christian ministry. Here's the big problem in the seminary. The students cheat all the time. <laughs> cheat. Seminarians. Cheating all the time. You say, why all the time, even after they're corrected? Yeah. Watson says, I watch them like a hawk. I catch them all the time, but some of them are cheating so well, I can't even catch them. (laughs) Why? Because they're taught to cheat. The whole school system is full of cheating. Kids are taught, this is the way you get through. Then you become an adult. And you might try to start a business. What's the tax rate in Ukraine for a businessman? 135%. Not of profit, but of revenue. Uh, Not revenue, what's the word? The top line. No, the top line. Profit's bottom line. Sales, there you go. 135% of sales. Try that on for size. You can't even get out of the bank office to start business with that kind of a program. So what do you do? You lie and you cheat. If you don't, there will be no business. That's the reason that in the church in Ukraine, one of the synonyms for sinner, lost person, is businessman. (laughs) You know, well, it works here too sometimes, you know. But isn't that sad? Think about all the outstanding businessmen and businesswomen you know in this city. And Ukraine, every one of them is seen as a liar and a cheater because the only way you can survive in Ukraine is with two books. One set of books for the government and one set of books for you and your family. The whole society was raped when atheistic governance came in to take over and show them how to live. And now their whole system is cursed and it will take multiple generations for them to be delivered from such a curse. There's one simple reason. People forgot God. They just forgot Him. They thought they could do without Him. And any society who thinks that way is going to find themselves in a royal mess. And sometimes business people forget the only way you can do business in a democratic society in a capitalistic economy the only way you can do business is when you can trust people if you have to litigate every contract there's no possible way you can do business you have to be able to communicate trust and you have to be able to receive trust and you have to be able to bank on trust and when you cease to be able to do that you cease to have the system of blessing that we've all taken for granted and just assumed was a nice secular idea that came from somewhere. 
The whole thing is based on people who are committed to the law of God. And it is good for you and for your children and your grandchildren. And when you go squandering it, you've squandered goodness for your children and your grandchildren. And I tell you, gentlemen, it's worth your life. Wherever you are, whether it's as a physician or as a lawyer or a business person or a person in ministry, it is worth your life to seek to bring the righteousness of God to whatever realm you're in, to your professional society, to your workplace, to your corporation, wherever it is. And if you as salt and light shut down, who's going to be the salt and light? Nobody. And we will lose what's been given to us by some very brave, self-sacrificial people hundreds of years before us. And that's what God is saying to them. These commandments are for your personal good, for your family's good, for your church's good, and for your nation's good. And certainly for God's people. Now, not only total obedience, but this must come from the heart. And here we come to verses 14 through 19. This is a remarkable series of six verses. It is a pair of matching triplets. Verses 14, 15, 16 is one triplet. Each verse is a part of the triplet. Verses 17, 18, 19 is another triplet. How do these triplets work? The first note of the triplet is to exalt God. The second note of the triplet is to say something surprising about Him. And the third note of the triplet is to say, so this is what you're supposed to do about it. And you get this cycle. You get two... uh, two versions of it. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. First of all, it must come from your heart in your love for God. The first commandment. Everyone asks the Lord, what's the greatest commandment? Well, the first one, love the Lord your God. And that's where Moses starts. Now let's talk about this. Let's look how we lo- why we love Him. First of all, He rules the world. You see this in verse 14. God is the sovereign ruler over all of the universe. To the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth, with all that is in it. The earth is the Lord's. Everything. He owns it all. He is the exalted creator. That's where Moses starts. Then secondly, notice, but in His greatness He has chosen you. Now in in chapters 8 and 9 we saw the remarkable thing that He chose us even though we're so few and so weak. Here we see the remarkable thing that He chose us even though He's so great. So you put the two of them together, He's so great, cosmically great, and we're infinitesimally small and weak. This is the amazing thing about His love. So He's chosen you, and He's chosen you just because in in love. He just did it, just in love above all peoples, then what does this mean? It means we must circumcise our hearts. Now, this is a very interesting phrase. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. You say, well, I know I've got some foreskin, but I didn't know I had it on my heart. Well, here's what he's saying. The big marker for the Jew was his circumcision. Pagans considered that outrageous. That was kind of like exposing yourself. If you had foreskin, you weren't exposed. You cut it off, you're exposed. So to them, it was a scandal. But to the Jew, that was their marker. They were circumcised. Take the foreskin off. And 
throughout the time of Jesus into the first century. The big question in the church, can you be a Christian and not be circumcised? <laughs> Imagine that as a church debate. No, today we, today we prefer, so what color shall the carpet be in the sanctuary? That kind of thing. But for them it was, can you be a Christian and not be circumcised? So for centuries, this was the big marker of being in the covenant. Here's what Moses is saying. Gentlemen, it's not your penis, it's your heart. That's the marker. Be sure your heart is circumcised. And what does that mean? Well, look at its opposite on page 348. No longer stubborn. That's what it is. What does stubborn mean? Stubborn, the word here in Hebrew for stubborn is a stiff neck. Now, I've got a stiff neck. I have a fused neck from an automobile accident, so it's stiff. But it's not this way that he's talking about. It's this way he's talking about. Some of us have a stiff neck. It's tough to bow down. We don't like bowing down. We'd rather just keep our head up right like this because you never know. You can't trust anybody. You you bow down, close your eyes, you could get whacked. And we don't trust the Lord, so we're not going to bow down. We don't revere Him, so we're not going to bow down. We just stay up like Him. We're equals. We're Americans. Nobody's going to trade on us, not even God. And Moses says, look, circumcise your heart, which is the opposite of having a stiff neck. And get a heart that reveres Him and loves Him and bows down before Him. And he's saying that's the result. So you'll see that He wants total obedience from our heart in our love for God. Now, secondly, He wants it in our love for our neighbor. How does that work? Well, look at verse 17. He rules the world alone. That's what we learn there. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. In other words, here's what Moses is saying. In verse 14, he says, look at God vis-a-vis creation. He's not part of the creation. He made the creation. That's how great he is. Now over here in verse 17, look at God vis-a-vis the other gods. He rules over them. And if He rules over them, what are they? They're not gods. He's the God of the gods. He's the Lord of the lords. He's the King of the kings. There is none greater than He. He is absolute sovereign over all the spiritual realities of the world, including the devil and all his minions. That's how great He is. This is the wonderful summation of the presentation of God in the Old Testament. He is Lord over everything, material and spiritual. Now, what's the second thing in this triplet? Here's the real irony. Gentlemen, it's hard to express how ironic this is. But before we, look, before we d- describe uh, verse 18, l- look at the last part of 17 where it says he's not partial and takes no bribe. That is, you can't bribe him. You can't manipulate him. I had a woman one time when she was talking about baptizing uh, her child. She said, well, I, believe, I have no problem with infant baptism theologically. My problem is that, to be honest, I'm just afraid if I do my part, God won't do his part. Can you believe that? What is his part? Let me tell you what his part is. To do whatever he wants. That's his part. With you and your children. And you give your life completely over to him to do whatever he will because you trust him. If he kills you, you trust him. 
You trust that that's good. And gentlemen, it is. And if you're like myself, I've asked him to kill me before I would do certain things that I would rather not do. I'd rather be dead than to do certain things. Lord, please take my life. Please kill me. There are a lot worse things than getting killed. So no matter what he does to us, we're saying, Lord, I trust you. But we sometimes try to bribe him. I have people who say to me, you know, I've tried to be a Christian. I've been an honest man. I've always paid my taxes. And now look what happens to me. I mean, this thing doesn't even work. You know how they're treating God? Like he can be bribed. Like you can bribe him from not being sovereign. You can bribe him from not having a cosmic plan that you don't understand. You can bribe him so that everything good for you also feels pleasant to you. Try bribing him and see if that works for you. Some people cast God off when they can't bribe him anymore with their good behavior. You want to know how good your behavior is? It's not very good. But we try to bribe him. Look, God is sovereign. Can't bribe him. Stop it. Leave with him to dispose of all things, including yourself. But then look in verse 18, the great irony. Normally, in ancient Near Eastern treaties, when or, or ancient Near Eastern texts, when God is described as the great sovereign God, then what the text will say, He has shown special favor to the Pharaoh. He's shown special blessing on the royal family. And of course, who writes these ancient Near Eastern texts? Royal families write them. <laughs> And so uh, in, in many of these texts that we still have, the text will describe the gods as showing peculiar favor and elevating and exalting the royal family. Would you look at verse 18? None of that. Just the opposite. Who will this sovereign of all creation and of all the gods, whom will he, upon whom will he bestow his divine favor? The one who has no parents, the woman who has no husband, and the sojourner who has no country. Is this not incredible? The grace of our God in all of his sovereign majesty? Who does he decide to elevate? Who will he hold up before men as the favored royal ones? He holds up the vulnerable. It's absolutely remarkable what Moses is. There's nothing like this in the Near Eastern world. Nothing like it. This God is truly God and different from every other of the false gods. He loves the vulnerable. He shows no favoritism in one sense. But on the other hand, he does show great favor toward the vulnerable. So what shall we do? Love the vulnerable. Verse 19. He says, So love the sojourner, therefore. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, I'm sorry we only have three minutes, but is there not an obvious application here, gentlemen? Look, in almost every nation of the world, you have sojourners. In almost every nation of the world, you have people who are, who are part of the system, usually the dominant ethnic group, and they've got the levers of power, they've got citizenship and all the rights, and then you usually have some smaller, usually ethnic groups who are not... In, plugged into the system, who are not given all of their rights, who are marginalized by society. Is there any example we can think of? 
Sometimes these people come into the country legally. Sometimes they come into the country illegally. Is there any example we can think of? Do you think God might be talking to Americans today? Now look, there are two sides to this issue, two big sides of immigration from the South. One is that we ought to have immigration laws that make sense and that whatever law you have, they ought to be put into practice. But for some reason, probably economically driven, we've decided not to execute those laws. We've decided not to have righteousness on our borders. We've asked people from the South to come by lowering our enforcement. Why did we do that? We like cheap labor. That's why, because there are many companies along the whole border in Texas and Arizona and New Mexico and California that would just completely fall apart without the help from the South. So there is this implicit lethargy in enforcing laws because there are lots of wealthy people who are benefiting from the immigration. So you think this is an accident? You think we haven't done this? No, we did it. There are reasons we're doing it. We've lowered the enforcement. Now that the people are coming in, the other part of the population who's not benefiting financially from the immigration but who feel threatened by the immigration, they're coming over on the other side and say, get rid of those people. I don't care if you divide up their families. I don't care if you split them up. Just put them on a bus and send them back. And neither groups are Christian, although they claim to be. None of them are reading their Bibles. And the main thing is, I don't care how they got here. They're here. And they're called sojourners. And don't forget where you came from. You were wandering around all over the place. You were aliens. You were in the wilderness. And God took care of you in a magnificent way. And He has revealed His character to you. And this is something about His character you need to know. He actually loves the vulnerable. And He wants you to love them too. So, I believe we have about 125,000 people in the greater Memphis area that qualify. Where's the church? I don't know. They must not be reading Deuteronomy 10, for what I can tell. Love the sojourner, just like God loved you. How did He love you? He provided for you. He taught you the gospel. He took great interest in you. And this is when the church will make itself known, when it listens to this. Now, lastly, we got 30 seconds, my watch anyway, and I'm probably cheating a little bit here. I did spend some time in Ukraine. Uh, the last thing in verses 20 through 22 is for His glory. We do all this for His glory. He is your praise. He is your God. He has done great and terrifying things for you. So you praise Him and you trust Him. His praise is to be on your lips. His praise is to be in your heart. His praise is to be in your life. The whole reason you live is to praise Him. Everything about you, trust in everything about Him. That's the goal of life. And that, gentlemen, I believe is one of the grandest summaries of how to live life in Christ that you'll find in the Bible. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your faithfulness to Your covenant that You gave us. Please help us today with joy and gratitude for all that you've done for us to rise up and to be men of the covenant today and every day until we see that covenant perfectly consummated in the return, the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.